Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Florida Humanities Council and the National Endowment for the Humanities. It's also made possible in part by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the Brevard County Board of Commissioners through the Brevard Cultural Alliance, Incorporated. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Broatmarkle, and coming up on this week's program, traditional Greek culture has thrived in Tarpon Springs for more than a century. And they get up in the morning and have Greek food and sweep out their courtyards and which have various plants you might see in Greece, you know, and they'll have their coffee outside. We'll visit the Florida Classics Library and Bookstore in Hope Sound and discuss the architecture of James Gamble Rogers in Winter Park. It's really an interesting story of how one man in a town had so much influence over what the town looked like. All that ahead on Florida Frontiers. Χρόνια και χρόνια τώρα τριγυρνώ σαν πουλί περιπλανόμενο Με στη ξενιτιά, με στη μοναξιά που δεν την αντέχω άλλο πηγιά Για την νοσταλγό, για την λαχταρό, την αγάπη μου και το χωριό In the city of Tarpon Springs you can listen to Greek music, try the tasty pastry baklava, have a meal of lamb stew or a unique Greek seafood dish, sip the licorice-flavored alcoholic beverage ouzo, and enjoy many other aspects of traditional Greek culture. You can see the neo-Byzantine-style architecture of St. Nicholas Greek Orthodox Church and watch the sponge divers unload their catch on the city dock downtown. Tarpon Springs has the largest percentage of Greek Americans of any city in the United States. Even before the first 500 Greek sponge divers arrived in Tarpon Springs in 1905, a thriving town was already in place. The Diston land purchase of 1881, when Hamilton Diston bought 4 million acres of land for 25 cents an acre, led to the establishment of Tarpon Springs. Diston brought businessman Anson Safford to Tarpon Springs to stimulate development. Tina Bukovalis is curator of arts and historical resources for the city of Tarpon Springs and says that Safford moved into a small dog-trot-style cracker house. They uh, improved the house by adding a second story and expanding it, um, and it became quite a showcase, uh, basically trying to show the elegant way that people could live in Florida uh, at a time when this was really, in many ways, still kind of a frontier town. Uh, but through the influence of Anson Safford uh, and uh, Hamilton Diston and, and the wealthy Northerners that came in, you know, there did, uh, Tarpon Springs did develop to be, uh, to become one of the early uh, and very elegant resorts. The Victorian home that Safford created can be enjoyed today. The Safford House Museum features period furniture and original family artifacts that preserve the home as it was in 1883. Soon after Anson Safford began developing Tarpon Springs, the Orange Belt Railway came to the town in 1887. 
the train depot is now a museum. Sharon Sawyer is archivist for the Tarpon Springs Area Historical Society, which operates the museum. The building we we're in was built in 1909 because the original railroad station burned down in 1908. And this was restored in 2005 to its original, um, the floors you'll notice in uh, the pine floors out front and also the warehouse floors in the back are the original. Uh, the walls we've left um, with the writing on it. And um, so this is, this was um, segregated when it was built. Uh, there's, if you go out front, there's a colored waiting room and a white waiting room. And th there was a wall in between the two that was torn down in the 70s, not until the 70s. Um, the station master's room is the next room over, and we have exhibits in that, and then the warehouse area. We have um, pretty much the history of Tarpon Springs uh, that you can go through. So it's it's a neat museum. Displays at the Tarpon Springs History Museum include profiles of prominent physicians, including Dr. Mary Jane Safford. Mary was Anson Safford's sister and is believed to be the first female physician in Florida. Shelving and bottles from the 1880s drugstore are also displayed, along with artifacts from the Orange Belt Railway. Sharon Sawyer. One thing um, about the railroad, it was um, brought here by Peter Demons, Demons Landing in St. Petersburg. Um, he, he brought the railroad from Sanford to Tarpon Springs and then on down to St. Petersburg. And it was supposed to be the longest um, 12 gauge, I guess it is, railroad in the United States at that time. So um, before the railroad came, everybody had to get here by boat or uh, wagon. So the railroad in 1887 made the big difference here in town, I believe. It was the sponge industry, though, that really put Tarpon Springs on the map. By the mid-1800s, there was a thriving sponge industry in the Florida Keys, but by the beginning of the 20th century, Tarpon Springs was the largest sponge port in the United States. While sponges in the Keys were harvested with long poles, in Tarpon Springs, Greek sponge divers donned canvas suits with round metal helmets. Tina Bukovalis explains what makes the Tarpon Springs community unique. Florida is the only place in the country that uh, sponges grow, and, and the sponge industry was the biggest maritime industry in Florida, and we're talking millions in the late 19th century, which was quite something. Um, and um, Key West at that time, you know, in the 19th century was a bigger producer, but uh, once uh, sponges were discovered in this area in 1873, the whole area from here up up to Apalachicola became a hotbed of sponging, and eventually um, Tarpon Springs became a market for sponges. Uh, and when Greeks came into this area as uh, sponge buyers, uh, John Kokoros, uh, he realized that the way sponges were harvested in Greece would uh, produce far more than the methods, the hooking methods they were using in Florida. So they brought over Greeks and um, uh, it was advertised that there was uh, a lot of business to be done here. So uh, at first 500 came in 1905 and then within a couple of years there were 1500 and there were lots of boats. And uh, it uh, very quickly made uh, Tarpon Springs the sponge capital of the world. Tarpon Springs was a big, important town at a time when St. Pete was a, a wide place in the road. Uh, and there were buyers here from Europe, 
it, w it was quite a place. Uh, and um, before long, I mean, within a couple decades, the Greeks were the majority. Or the, well, I would say they were the dominant population element because there were several population elements. There were the, there was the Anglo element and the African American, which had a very big Bahamian influence because of the sponge industry. But for a long time, the Greeks were the dominant population element. So the fact that this was a big uh, pocket of Greek culture and has remained so. Uh, I was talking to a friend of mine not long ago in Miami who's a cultural geographer, and she pointed out that this is the only place in Florida that has such a unique, ongoing, uh, whole cloth pocket of European settlement. There are places with Latin American settlement, West Indian settlement, but European communities, this is, this is unique in Florida. With the large influx of Greek sponge divers and their families to Tarpon Springs, businesses to serve them were established, including restaurants, grocery stores, bakeries, and coffee houses. St. Nicholas Greek Orthodox Church was constructed in 1907 and expanded in 1943 with marble imported from Greece. The unique Epiphany celebration held on January 6th attracts people from around the world. Following a ceremony at St. Nicholas, the congregation walks to the sponge docks downtown where a wooden cross is thrown into the water. The young man who retrieves the cross is believed to be blessed for the year. The Patriarch of Constantinople, who is the Greek Orthodox equivalent of the Pope, came to Tarpon Springs in 2006 for the 100th anniversary of the city's unique Epiphany celebration. Tita Bukovalis, former folklorist for the state of Florida, explains that there are many examples of Greek culture in Tarpon Springs. I think in, in all instances in which there are large um, bubbles, you know, of population, such as with Cubans in Miami, you know, or Greeks here, you get more of a whole cloth culture. And here, um, the culture has been brought over pretty much whole cloth. Uh, I mean, as, as one writer pointed out, um, when the Greeks came to here, they actually changed their life very little from what it was in Greece because the climatic conditions were very similar. They were in the same occupations. They were living together, you know, and eventually they brought their families over in a certain part of town. You know, they brought the priests and religion in. And basically, it was very much like living in Greece. And so even today, you know, after people have been here, some people for four or five generations, you know, depending how quickly and when they came over, you know. Um, there's still a big segment of the population that speaks Greek. I live in the part of town called Greek Town, and most of the people there are Greek, and most of the people there do speak Greek. And they get up in the morning and have Greek food and sweep out their courtyards, and which have various plants you might see in Greece, you know, and they'll have their coffee outside. And the old ladies and their headscarves will be going over to St. Michael's Chapel or St. Nicholas or whatever, or down to the bakery, the National Bakery down the street, which is a Greek bakery, or to Halki Market, which has been there for a 100 years or so. Uh, the men will go, walk right by my house to go to the Caffeinea, which are traditional men's Greek coffee houses. Uh, a lot of them who are old divers and things will go down to the sponge docks, which is a few blocks down the street, and just hang out at the docks to, to, ha to hang out with other old guys and see what the divers and things are doing. You know, it's, uh, you know, the people with the gift shops, while it may look like tourist shops, the culture there is very much an active Greek culture. The dominant language is probably Greek. If you go down there, you sp I mean, if I go down there to go to the hockey market, I'll spend two hours, you know, talking to various people. You know, it's like living in a small Greek town. Uh, 
with all the ups and downs. <laughs> the Greek history and culture of Tarpon Springs is preserved in a new heritage center with exhibits and artifacts and space for public gatherings. Greeks have the dominant culture in Tarpon Springs, but archivist Sharon Sawyer has lived in the city for almost 60 years and says that all people get along in this small community. The Greeks and the Anglos, everyone, as far as I can remember, got along. It was like a, a community project for all of us. Some of my best friends are Greek girls. Some of them are uh, cracker girls. You know, it's it's. Uh, just it's still got that small community uh, feeling about it so there are a lot of people that have moved in but it still has that small community feeling you don't find that everywhere a trip to downtown Tarpon Springs provides the opportunity to see spongers at work sailing into port on boats with unique Greek designs Tina Bukovalis. There is a special kind of sponge boat that developed in the Aegean, which is called an Akdermas, which is a type of trahandri, which is a, a type of Greek fishing boat. But this particular boat was designed for sponging, and some of the spongers swear that this is still the best design. Um, and uh, back in the early days and up until, you know, a few decades ago, these, these boats were being produced, hundreds and hundreds were produced from here to Apalachicola because Greeks went all the way from here up the coast and were working in maritime industries. So, for instance, the one that's sitting in the middle of the sponge exchange as a display was built in Apalachicola and sailed down here for sale. But, um, yeah, these boats have a, a very different bow, you know, than, than most boats do, different design, you know, but they're very stable and uh, have all the right stuff, you know, to carry the sponges and everything. The last, um, the last boat builder, Greek boat builder, is George Sarukos, who got a, a received a Folk Heritage Award uh, in 2009. And there's only one working Greek sponge boat, um, and it's his last boat that he built, and that's owned by Tasso Karastinos, who, who also won a Folk Heritage Award in 2000 and. Uh, as a sponge diver and captain. The history and culture of Tarpon Springs is preserved at the Safford House Museum, the Train Depot Museum, and the Heritage Center. While tourism has eclipsed sponge diving as the economic engine driving Tarpon Springs, it's still the living, active maritime community that attracts tourists to the downtown docks. It is a working waterfront, and um, although the sponge industry has shrunk, um, a lot of the boats, but not all of the boats, still dock there. The city has 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 essentially given them this part of the downtown working docks uh, to have their boats, and they conduct, do conduct their business from there. So during a significant part of the year, from from about the beginning of April and of March, you know, to November through November, uh, the the spongers will be. Uh, coming in and going out, and um, you know when they're not uh, uh, having downtime and working on their boats and out there, they are loading, unloading sponges, processing sponges. They are actually the best ambassadors for the town because almost all of them are very articulate and very willing to talk to people and explain what they're doing, and you know are essentially demonstrating the processes right there on the docks. And then, and then surrounding the docks area across the street are various shops. Um, many of them are gift shops, but there's also quite a few restaurants. And it's not just for tourists. That's where locals go, too, all, all the time, you know, so people can experience culture there. Or, you know, some of the shops are full of Greek 
CDs or videos, where, again, you know, where locals go, you know, so um, people can still come in and have access to Greek culture that way. Tina Bukovalis is Curator of Arts and Historical Resources for the City of Tarpon Springs. We also spoke with Sharon Sawyer, archivist for the Tarpon Springs Area Historical Society. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Established in 1856, the Florida Historical Society is the oldest existing cultural organization in the state. We are the statewide historical society, but don't receive state funding. We are dependent upon membership support. Become a member of the Florida Historical Society today. Just go to our website at myfloridahistory.org and click on the Join Now button. Janie Gould recently visited the Florida Classics Library in Hope Sound and has this report. Val Martin sits surrounded by a happy clutter of Floridiana in his publishing house slash bookstore in Hope Sound. He deals in Florida books and maps. He reprints classics, such as Jonathan Dickinson's journal, The Story of a Shipwreck Off Jupiter Island, which was first published in 1699. He published the 50th anniversary paperback edition of Marjorie Stoneman Douglas's masterpiece, River of Grass. He's done Theodore Pratt's historical novel, The Barefoot Mailman, which became a movie, and numerous other tomes about treasure, nature, and history, all of them Florida-centric. My first question, I thought, was an obvious one. If you had to pick your favorite book about Florida, what would it be? Senate document number 89, printed by the 62nd Congress in 1911. It's a report about the Everglades, written way, way before anybody thought about saving the Everglades. And you republished it with a new cover, and you're calling it A Study in Bureaucratic Self-Deception, South Florida in Peril. So tell me, what did the Senate conclude in 1911 about the Everglades? They concluded that draining the Everglades was a doable project. This report, what did it do? Did it founder on a shelf somewhere in Washington for a long time? How did you get a hold of it? I ran across a copy of this in an unbound edition at a bookstore in Pensacola when I was out traveling around the state opening up retail book accounts. And it sat on my shelf for 15 or 20 years until all of the activity began around the early 1990s for restoring the Everglades. And I pulled it off the shelf and reprinted it. Had you read it thoroughly up until that time? No, I began reading it in the mid-90s, and I read it twice. It was so fascinating, so full of documentation from very early surveys. So really, it gives a framework of what they were planning to do. It doesn't say it was good or bad. It just laid out the parameters of how they were going to drain the swamp. Exactly right. So this book was on a shelf somewhere in Pensacola, probably hadn't been opened ever since 1911, and you brought it back and republished it. And believe it or not, it is a very poor seller. Marjorie Douglas's book is far and away the most popular book on the history of the Everglades. Do you think the uh, government jargon is just a little bit too dry for the average reader? That might be a possibility. However, for anyone who is interested in the subject of the drainage of the Everglades, I believe this report is the benchmark reference. Are you always on the lookout for something like that in your travels around Florida? Absolutely. You looking for anything specific now? No, but I haven't been doing much traveling either, so I'm pretty much focused on distributing what I've already published. 
Tell me about your own book reading. I like to read a lot of current nonfiction that has to do with the subject of where we are today in America. I just finished Jesse Ventura's book, American Conspiracies. Have you read most of the major Florida authors? I can't say that I have. There's so many good ones. I've read maybe uh, a dozen. A hundred years from now, what Florida authors are still going to be read? Marjorie Douglas, Patrick Smith, Theodore Pratt. If you were going to be on a desert island and could only take one book with you, could you pick one? Jonathan Dickinson's journal. What's its appeal? The realization of what the survivors from the wreck of the Reformation had to go through in order to escape captivity in southern Florida at the hands of the Indians and walk the beach from Jupiter Inlet to St. Augustine. It's incredible that any of them survived. Absolutely. All you have to do is try to put yourself in their shoes. It's a mind-boggling experience. And they didn't even have shoes. You're correct. They didn't have shoes or clothes. Val Martin owns Florida Classics Library, based in Hope Sound. Janie Gould from WQCS prepared that report. This is Florida Frontiers. It was exactly 22 years ago that I came to Tallahassee. Paul Champion and Chuck Glore started a little coffee house down on North Adams Street. That's Gamble Rogers performing with Will McLean. For many Floridians, Gamble Rogers was a guitar-picking singer and storyteller known nationwide until his untimely death in 1991. For residents of one Florida town, though, the name will always be associated with the folk singer's father, one of our state's premier architects. Bill Dudley talks with the authors of a book about the man and his work. It's really an interesting story of how one man in a town had so much influence over what the town looked like and really gave it a lot of charm and character that has outlived him. Virginia architectural historian Deborah McLean. She and husband John McLean are the authors of The Architecture of James Gamble Rogers II in Winter Park, a book that looks at the life and work of a man whose home designs set the tone for a community. Rogers was born in Chicago in 1901. Both his father and grandfather were architects. In 1915, the family moved to Daytona Beach, and nine years later, the young man took a position in his father's firm. A few years later, he opened a branch office in the growing town of Winter Park, north of Orlando. Here, for the next several generations, Rogers would play a part in the creation of the Florida Dream. I think that you can look at Rogers' work and see how it does play into the myth of Florida that Henry Flagler and Henry Plant were selling. Flagler had his railroad coming down the East Coast, and it stopped in St. Augustine, and it stopped at the Ponce Leon Hotel, that he had designed in a Spanish style. It was this exotic style. Florida was an exotic land that people were just starting to recognize as a a vacation land, and sort of played into that myth. People moving into Florida in the 19-teens and 20s were rejecting the colonial arts and crafts or classical revival house designs from back home. They wanted something more tropical, more exotic. Taking their cue from Flagler, influential architects like Addison Meisner in Palm Beach were designing homes incorporating a mixture of Spanish, Moorish, and other Mediterranean influences. James Gamble Rogers would adapt these ideas for his winter park homes. It was perfect timing for him. Rollins College had been established there, 
the area was growing, and the residents there were looking for an image for their town. And he was、uh, one of a handful of architects really working in Winter Park. With his painstaking attention to detail, Rogers soon established himself as an architect's architect. His favorite designs in the French provincial or Spanish style featured courtyards and colonnades, high ceilings and tile roofs. He took Florida's climate into account as well, according to architect and co-author Patrick McLean. He normally raised his buildings up off the ground. A couple of feet to allow for air to flow underneath the building. He put vents in and he framed the buildings,、uh, you know, using floor framing. Typically, in his Spanish buildings, he would have deep recesses for the openings. In other words, the walls would be very thick, and the windows would be recessed in that thick wall to give as much shade as possible, as well as orienting the building correctly towards the、uh, points of the compass and grouping windows such that you would reduce the amount of heat. In the summertime, Rogers was also ahead of his time in the use of termite shields, metal caps to discourage wood-boring insects from entering the home from below ground. But it was his sense of authenticity within each design style that appealed to critics and clients alike. When he began a design, he maybe in his head conceived of the story he wanted to tell with the house. You know that he wanted it to look worn and he wanted it to look. As if the building was reflecting its age. He would deliberately sag a ridge line, the very high point of a roof, you know, three, four inches, just enough so you'd look at it and think, well, gosh, that looks like it's kind of、uh, bowing down a little bit due to age and weathering. What I love about his work is that every view, every facade. There's something different. There's a surprise. Elspeth Gordon is the author of Florida's Colonial Architecture. Whether it's in the arch or in the courtyard, or the way the window looks out on the landscape, he was concerned with the whole house, the indoors, the outdoors, the aesthetics of living in the house. He was very interested in adding to the community. Having his buildings contribute to that, because every building makes a statement, good or bad. It can detract or it can add to the character of the community, and I think he was very conscientious when he went to do a residence, a commercial building. He he was always thinking of the the big picture. By the time of his death in 1990, James Gamble Rogers had designed homes of every style. Churches, banks, office buildings, and even jails. In the late 1940s, his firm designed the Florida Supreme Court building in Tallahassee, famous today as the backdrop for press conferences and speeches during the 2000 presidential race. But Rogers will always be remembered for the period in the 1930s when he created the look of Winter Park. I, I like to think of Winter Park sort of like a secret garden, because of Rogers. The views are full of surprises at every turn. Makes you want to move to Winter Park and live in a Gamble Rogers house. He was one of those architects whose buildings have survived, and people look back on his work and know that that was the beginning of their town. And that image remains in Winter Park today. The architecture of James Gamble Rogers II by Patrick and Deborah McLean is published by University Press. I'm Bill Dudley. With funding from the Florida Department of State Division of Cultural Affairs, this report was produced by the Florida Humanities Council. You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Find us on Facebook at Florida Historical Society. Follow us on Twitter at myflhistory, and visit our website at myfloridahistory.org. Please join us again next week right here. I'm Ben Broatmarkle.
Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Florida Humanities Council and the National Endowment for the Humanities. It's also made possible in part by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the Brevard County Board of Commissioners through the Brevard Cultural Alliance, Incorporated.